0: So we are going to start a Christmas series, a three-week series uh, today, called "Christmas." Now the mas is important, uh, M-A-S is the Spanish word for more. So we're, what we're going to do in this series is look at how Christmas can mean more this year, or look at more of what Christmas really means. And I think in a church, you're going to typically hear this. It's not about the gifts, and it's not about all the stuff. It's about Jesus, and that's true. But even when we say that, there's more to it than just Jesus. So what does that mean? So we're going to get sort of into the depth, and I will give a disclaimer. Well, probably all three weeks, we're going to get fairly deep. Okay, I don't do this that often. I don't, I don't know if I've ever gotten as deep as we're going to get today. Just a heads up. What? So put your thinking caps on. Get your notepad out. We're going to talk. We're going to list several pretty deep theological terms, and again, I don't normally go there, but I found this resource, this will just show you how uh, how much of a nerd I am, Uh, so I like reading a lot, and so one of the books I got for fun, uh, the book was called The Incarnation of Christ. I just, it's not for study material, it's just, I thought, that sounds cool, I want to read about that. This is like back in June and July. So as I'm reading this, about what the birth of Jesus means, and the depth of the meaning, and how it just inter- interweaves through all of Scripture, I thought, this is, I need to share this with somebody. And so I started highlighting the book, and it's got all kinds of colors in there, and all kinds of notes in there. So basically, from that resource is where this series sort of birthed, is where it came from. Uh, this idea of Christmas means more than we many times realize or think that it does. So, Christmas is this series. So, I, I want to start out with this question. Just think about this for just a second. Uh, are there unknowable things? Are there things in the universe, in your life, that are just unknowable? They're just above your realm of knowledge. You will never be able to study enough, or know enough, or learn enough. Or get enough. We'll never discover enough to really know the true nature of certain things. There's a quote I wanted to share, and it's from a very famous Donald from Washington D.C. Not the one you're thinking of. All right, um, Donald Rumsfeld was the United States Secretary of Defense back in the George W. Bush era. And in 2002, when they were trying to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and had not found them, he was at a press conference, and one of the reporters was saying, hey, what do you think about all these reports that nothing's been found, that you don't know anything? And here's how he responded. This, you have to follow, we have to read this very slowly. I had to read this several times to understand what he was saying. He said this, as we know, there are, th- there are no knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we do not know we do not know. I mean, how much Washington gibberish was that just there? I mean, that was a lot of nothing right there. What he's saying is there are some things, because the the, the question from the reporter again was, what do you think about the reports that you don't know anything, that you've not found anything? He said, well, we don't know what what we don't know. we maybe haven't discovered them yet, but we don't know that until we've kind of covered every square inch of that nation. We've gone to every bunker and every mountain and covered every hill and valley and not found them. Then we'll know what we know and we'll know what we don't know. But he said right now, we don't know what we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, so even explanation was more complicated. But in many ways, God is like that. In many ways, God is or at least seems unknowable. He seems too big to even comprehend. He seems too vast to wrap our minds around. And even if you can sort of kind of know him a little bit, he just seems very uh, unrelatable at the very least. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's really a main reason a lot of people reject faith. It's, well, there's just too much there. There's just too much to wrap my head around. I can't understand it. Therefore, I choose not to believe it. And I would say that's a pretty weak argument, to be honest, because there are a lot of things we don't, I don't understand all the laws of physics, but I believe them, okay? So we do it all the time, but with faith specifically and with God in general, we say, well, I can't know him, so I won't believe in him. But here's, let me just list a few reasons for a few minutes about why God seems unknowable. First of all, by nature, God is eternal. I can't relate to that at all. I mean, you look at the very first verse of the first book, in the first chapter of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. So at the very beginning of the story, God was just there. He he was there before anything else was. So there's questions like, where did God come from? How did God get here? And then this is a good one, how old is God? Well, he's eternal. He doesn't really have an age, so I, I can answer that one for you. Where did he come from? How did he get here? He just was. He, eternal, by definition, is it just there's no beginning, no end. So he doesn't have a start date. He, it's not like day one of God, poof. Like, no, when, think, when there was nothing in, before Genesis 1, God was already there in the nothingness. God existed. He is eternal. I can't relate to that. I can't wrap my head around that completely. God seems very unknowable in that way. But also, God is, is also self-existent, okay? God is self-existent. There, there, let me give you a term here. If you have your version Bible app, it's in there. The, the theological term for that is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. God is just self-existent. He needs nothing and no one to exist. He just exists on his own. And that's kind of how we're introduced to God in Exodus 3. uh, Moses is in the wilderness and he sees this burning bush and he approaches it, and this booming voice speaks to him and calls his name Moses. And he realizes through this conversation, it's God. They have this this conversation and, and God commissions Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. And so Moses tries to make excuses about why he can't and why he shouldn't and why he may not do this. And one of them is, well, What's your name? If I tell them God spoke to me, who do I tell them? And God reveals himself to Moses by saying, I am that I am. That's pretty mystical sounding, but it's this aseity. It's this self-existent nature of God. He is, I, I just am. I just exist. Not because I was born. Not because someone created me. I don't have a start date. I don't have an end date. I just exist. That's who I am. That's who you should tell them ascending you. And as confusing as that sounds, that makes God seemingly unknowable, his self existent nature. And I came across this this week this idea. Uh, it is impossible for God not to exist. Just think about that for a second. Yeah. It's impossible, therefore, if God is self-existent, not dependent upon anything or anyone to exist, but with his eternal nature, it is impossible for God, therefore, to not exist. It's a pretty interesting idea, but it makes God seem unknowable, too vast to comprehend, too much to take in. And then we talk about this idea of the glory of God. It makes God seem very unknowable, the glory of God. So when Israel is escapes Egyptian bondage, they kind of camp out at this mountain where they think that God lives at the top of this mountain, and they think that because they look up there and it looks like the top of the mountain is just always on fire. And in Exodus uh, 19, it describes the scene like thunder and lightning and smoke coming down from the mountain, and it's kind of a scary thing, and through Moses, God even tells his people, don't touch the mountain or you'll be stoned to death. That's like, even before the law was made, that was really the first law of God. Don't touch the mountain where I live, because it's a, sacred, it's, it's a sacred sort of place. You can't handle it. It makes God seem very unknowable. But Moses, being the guy that he was later on in Exodus 33, he says this to God. He says, God, show me your glory. Like, I, I hear about it, and I sense it in certain ways. Show me your glory. And God's response to Moses is interesting, and again, making God seem unknowable. He says, no man can see God and live. He's saying, Moses, I would love to, but it would kill you, so for your own sake, I'm not going to do what you're asking. He says, no one can look into the face of God and live. You will die because of the vastness and the greatness of my glory. So God does some, he kind of throws Moses a bone because he's kind of you know his guy. He says, Here's what I'll do. He says, Come up here on this part of the mountain into the cleft of the rock, and my glory will pass by you. But so that you don't you're not consumed by the greatness of my glory, I'm gonna hold my hand over you as I pass by the opening. And then once the full face of my glory has passed by, I'll remove my hand. And so the King James Version, I believe it is, it says that Moses got to see God's hinder parts. I'm just thinking that's weird that God let Moses check him out. I just, you know, it's, I just always find that weird to me. Like, you really let the dude check you out from behind, God? That was not how you thought that would work? But he did. Uh, but he says, you can't see my face or you'll be consumed. You'll, like, be a crispy critter right there. But I, you, you, you can see kind of the, the, the rear view mirror of my glory. So he does that. So here's how powerful God's glory is. Moses sees like a very small image of sort of the back part of God, and just that alone, when he comes down from the mountain, his hair is white, his face is glowing brighter than the sun, so much so that people can't even look at Moses. They're going to go they're like, dude, whoa, tanning bed alert. You know, what's going on here? So he had to wear a veil over his face for a while while the, sort of the glory left his countenance. Just from seeing sort of a peak of a peak of the back of God caused that to happen. That's how big God is. That's his glory revealed. So God's glory it makes him seem uh, pretty unknowable. I can't relate to that. How, how can I know a God that I can't even look at without possibly dying? So then we get to this other idea, and that's the holiness of God. The holiness of God seems to make God very unknowable, very unrelatable as well. We tend to think of the holiness of God as sort of purity, sort of perfection. And that is an aspect of the holiness of God. But really, the word holiness is talking about God's transcendence. That God is unlike anything or anyone that has ever existed. And by his nature, his eternal nature, his self-existent nature, that's true. But that's what the holiness of God really is. God is transcendent. God is greater than anything in anyone. There is an otherness to him. There is an uncommonness to him. Nothing can even come close to equaling him. That's what the holiness of God really is. And similar to this encounter with Moses, later on when God institutes how he's to be worshipped, because he is holy, he puts restrictions on what that looks like. He puts parameters because he knows Okay, if, if they try to get too close, it's not good for them. And, what, and holiness also is, I uh, will say that for later, never mind, I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, I do that sometimes. So he puts restrictions here, so much so that when they build the tabernacle, there's a little room in the very back that's only used one day a year by one person for just a few minutes, and it's called the Holy of Holies. So the pre so the way it's, and even when the temple's built, there are sections where only certain members of the community are allowed to enter. And so there's parts of the tabernacle only certain priests can go in, but the Holy of Holies, the small little room, is where God's glory comes down one day, one time a year, and only one person, the high priest, can enter on that day. If anyone else tries to enter that room, they are struck dead. That's part of the, the law of the tabernacle. And even if another priest, other than the high priest, tries to enter that room, they're dead. That's the holiness of God. That's his otherness, his uh, his sort of transcendence in creation. Even if the high priest goes in and he hasn't cleansed himself with certain ceremonial washings, and it's a long list, it's a long process, they have to really get ready for this, they're struck dead. There's even sort of an er herb, it's not in scripture, but sort of Jewish legend tells us, that on this day, the high priest, just to be safe, in case he's not clean, he would have sort of this, uh, this uh, rope with some bells on it around one of his ankles or his legs or his waist. And if, he, if God decides on that day of atonement, the one day he's allowed in there, but he's not clean enough for the holiness of God and he's struck dead, they use the rope to pull him out. Because if anybody goes in after him, they're just going to add to the body count, okay? Okay. Uh, Again, it's not in Scripture specifically, but it is part of sort of the Jewish tradition of what this is. So God's holiness, again, is pretty unrelatable. I can't relate to a being like that. And again, how can I really thoroughly, personally know a being like that? How is that possible? He seems at such a distance. There's so much about him that seems unknowable. But what God does with his holiness is he gives this command. He says, be holy As I am holy. It's at least seven times that's in the law. Leviticus and a couple times in Deuteronomy. But it's like, no, no, but by definition I cannot do that. I cannot be holy as you are. I can't be transcendent as you are because I'm just a lowly created being. I can't, that's an impossible task. So how am I to keep this law in the way that you want me to when I can't keep the law in the way that you want me to? God seems very unknowable by his nature. And then we get to maybe the hardest part for many of us now to grasp with God, and that's the justice of God. This is what makes God seem mean and hateful and cruel, is his justice. This is the hardest part in our current day setting that people really, they struggle, and I, I, I understand some of that, uh, struggle with the justice of God. He doesn't put up with sin at all. He has no room for error here. His justice is perfect. He punishes sin. He punishes the wicked. He punishes the evildoer. He's not messing around. His justice is swift and it's final. And so when you read a lot of that Old Testament stuff, the justice of God being expressed or actually being done, you think, what is is God's deal? And so not only does God seem unknowable, it seems like why would I want to know a God like that? Like, yeah, I get that he's holy and perfect and pure, and so therefore by his nature he has to punish sin. But man, he seems really angry most of the time. He seems like he's really got problems. He needs to go see a therapist or something. I don't understand. What what is God's deal? So the justice of God is part of who he is. It's an important part of who he is. But it makes him seem unknowable and almost like I don't want to. And he just, well, let's just keep a fair distance here, because I don't really know if I want to know a God like that. God seems unknowable. At best, he seems like a mystery. At best, he seems more unrelatable. It seems like, whoa, this this God thing, I can't figure this out. I can't wrap my mind around him. There's too much there to take in. There, I, I, I kind of want to know him at times, but I just don't get it. I don't understand. There's... So much confusion, so many unknowns, so much mystery to it. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can know God, and sometimes even if I want to. But here's the beauty of Christmas, is that Christmas changes all of that. Christmas makes God knowable, or at least more knowable. So we, we see, here's what we're going to get into, a, a kind of a, a big... This is a, if you play Scrabble, there's not enough letters to do this word, but you can try. Christmas is about this word, condescension. Now, we see that word. We use it even currently in a certain way. And we usually, this has a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? Don't be condescending to me. Don't talk down to me. But that's what condescension, that's what it means. It's sort of like, um, you know, you would tell someone, so like if you watch the Big Bang Theory, most of that stuff, I don't understand. The science stuff, I don't understand half of what they say on that show. And so I would just say something like, talk to me in plain English. Explain to me like I'm five. Okay, like just, I, there are times where I do need someone to condescend because I just don't, I can't track with them. And so condescension has, can have a negative connotation. It can be abused in that way. But it's also sort of like when you learn a new language, you really want the teacher to really break it down for you on day one, don't you? So I know it's like, you know, in high school, freshman year, I started Spanish 101, and the first day the teacher's talking in Spanish, and I'm like, I am in the wrong class. <laughs> this is not, I think, am I in 401? Am I? Is this like a master's level course? Did I get to the, and, it's, and, and, and then she breaks it down, and she shows you, hey, you can learn this, you can do this. So it's kind of that way. So basically what, what the birth of Jesus does, what Christmas is, is it's day one of a God 101 class. Jesus condescends himself, because what that means is Jesus, which we'll get to in a minute, like God, um, is eternal and self-existent. He is part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. He existed before he was born, which is weird, but that's the mystery of Jesus and the mystery of Christmas. So he condescended, he left the glory of heaven where he's kind of the main guy to to condescend himself to come down to earth. It's the day that God put on skin is what Christmas really is. It's God in flesh. He makes God knowable through his birth, his life, and his death and resurrection leading up to what will be Easter. So the condescension of Jesus is so key because it really, again, it starts this God 101, intro to God sort of course for human history, for us. That we can't know God. I can't learn enough about him. I can't wrap my head around him enough. But Jesus condescends himself so that I can understand God a little bit better. So I can know him a little bit better. Now, again, I will say there are certain aspects of Jesus that do sound a lot like God that we've already talked about. And that's by design. So John chapter 1, verse 1, it sounds a lot like Genesis 1, doesn't it? it? Says this: in the beginning, that's how the whole book starts, right? That's how Genesis starts. In the beginning was the Word. John is describing Jesus. It says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is from John's point in the outset, his whole gospel, his theme is: hey, Jesus is God. Boom, verse 1. I'm telling you my thesis right off the bat, and the rest of my book is going to tell you, explain to you how this is true. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, that's Jesus, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the life of all mankind. So, John, again, is trying to show us Some of the same characteristics of God that make him unknowable, Jesus possesses those as well. That's what what makes Jesus unique to any other human who's ever lived. So another big term here, another, you know, like 10-letter word, triple word score here, is this term, the hypostatic union. This is the idea that Jesus, within Jesus, was two complete natures. He was fully human and fully divine fully God. This hypostatic union is what we call that. He had dual natures within him. He was like a 200% person, kind of. So fully God means he has, he's eternal. We see that in John 1. He was there at the beginning. He helped with this creation thing that happened in Genesis 1. He was there, part of that process. He is self-existent, so he didn't need anything, yet he has a birthday. Interesting. That, 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 that's that union there that is unique to No one, it's unique only to him. It's this hypostatic union that Jesus is God. He had two dual natures, fully God and fully man. He is eternal, yet he has a birthday. But what Jesus does with his condescension and through this union of two natures is he makes God knowable. How does he do that? Well, the three other main sort of ideas about God, he lives them out and shows us more of the character of God. So the first thing that Jesus does through his birth and then his life is he reveals God's glory. So Jesus is glory revealed. He is glory revealed. He fleshes out this knowability of God. So again, John chapter one, let's skip down to verse 14, kind of the key uh, idea here for John. The word, he started out with verse one, Jesus, the word became flesh And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God's glory. So again, God's glory, I can't look upon God's face and live. Jesus embodied God's glory so that now we can do that. We can look upon the glory of God and not die, which is a good baseline. But we can also, through Jesus, see God's glory and be in awe of it. Be like, whoa, God is better than I ever imagined. His glory is greater than I ever thought it would have been in my wildest dreams. That's what Jesus does. And it's this idea, another theological term, here we go again, of what we call progressive revelation. Where at the beginning, God sort of reveals a bit of who he is. He gives us kind of of a little sneak peek here, and then as time goes on, he reveals more about who he is, and then later on reveals a little bit more about who he is and what his plan for the world is, and then Jesus now is the full and final revelation. There is nothing else that God needs to say or explain about himself, because Jesus does it. That's the key, that's the beauty of the life of Jesus, and what starts with his birth at Christmas is that he's the full and final revelation of God. God has now completely explained himself as best as he ever will because he sent his son, God with skin on, to be the final puzzle piece to figure out God. He is glory revealed. Jesus also, he does this, he he does the impossible because he makes it possible for us to see God. Again, Exodus 33, no one can see God and live. Here's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 7. He's talking to his disciples. They're having a conversation. He's telling them in chapter 14, hey, I'm about to, what's about to happen? I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be gone from the earth. And they're trying to struggle with this, but here's what he says. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then, you know, one of his disciples, I think it's Philip, says, well, then show us the Father. And he's, I'm sure Jesus is like, Philip, I just said it. I just explained this to you. So he says it again. I think it's verse 9 or, or verse 10. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which up until this point has not been possible. If I truly see God, I'm dead. That's what that means. Either I saw his glory too much and I couldn't handle it and my body gave out, or I'm already dead and then I see God and his glory in heaven where I can then handle it. Jesus says, no, while you're here, alive and well with me, you're seeing the Father. He's making the impossible possible. He is the glory of God revealed fully and finally. He is the glory of God personified. The second thing that God or that Jesus does, that the birth of Jesus does, is it reveals more about God's holiness. So Jesus is God's holiness revealed. Again, like God, Jesus is transcendent. He is uncommon, but he gives us a clearer view of what the holiness of God really is. Because before, we saw God is transcendent, he's great, so he made these laws for us to follow in his way, but the laws seem Difficult, if not impossible. And that's what they equate holiness to. Holiness then becomes about obeying the law. Following the rules. Being pure, both inwardly and outwardly. That's what holiness became to them. But Jesus reveals what holiness really is. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, explained it to us in this way. He said, God made him, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God or the holiness of God. There's three things from here I want to talk about just really quickly about what Jesus how Jesus reveals true holiness. First, we see here from this verse, Jesus lived a life of purity and perfection. So, for all the people in the crowds that are going to say, "Well, he's not holy." He would he'd be able to say, "Well, then show me where I have disobeyed the law ever." So for the religious crowd, for the skeptics, for the doubters who are, holiness is about keeping the law, it's about keeping the law, it's about purity and perfection. Jesus crossed crossed that T and dotted that I really for them in one way to say, hey no, I, I am fully keeping the law. The other way in which that's important though is that with the Old Testament sacrificial system, one of the requirements when you bring an offering an animal to be sacrificed for your sin The scripture says it's got to be spotless, pure, without spot, wrinkle, blemish. It's got to be the purest animal that you own for this sacrifice of sin. Jesus does that. So his sinlessness is important. Because without it, his sacrifice doesn't really mean anything. When you equate it to the Old Testament covenant law, he had to be a spotless lamb. He had to be a sinless sacrifice in order for it to mean something for our sin. Because because I'm sinful, if I gave my life for someone's sin, it wouldn't, ma- wouldn't matter. Because I'm a sinful, imperfect sacrifice. So Jesus, for the doubters, and then for those he, were, he was dying for, had to be perfect. He lived a life of purity and perfection. He was holy in that way. The other thing that Jesus did with holiness is he showed what I call the true transfer of holiness. Because when you look at the Old Testament law, there's a lot of them. A lot of them are cleanliness laws. What you're going to see here is a transfer of holiness. If I am clean, I've kept the law, but I do certain things or touch certain things that are not clean. So for instance, a dead body is considered unclean. So if I right now am pure and holy before God, but I touch a corpse, that uncleanness has now come to me. I am now unclean. I am now unholy. And there are all sorts of other things in which that is true. But what Jesus does is he turns that on, his, on its head to show us what holiness really is. Because here's what Jesus did that drove religious people nuts. is He claims to be holy and pure. He claims to be from God, but yet he touches lepers to heal them. A leper is unclean. So much so, they have to have their own colony So they don't make other people unclean. If you get too close to someone with leprosy, you're now unclean. And it might spread to you. So you have to go outside the camp for so many days and wash yourself for so many ways, so many times. But Jesus shows us, no, 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 no. You think that if I touch something that's unclean, now I'm unclean. But here's what Jesus does. He says, if I who am holy touch what is unclean, I make it clean. That's where the miracles of Jesus are so powerful. He's touching blind people. He's touching the lame. He he touches a woman that had a bleeding issue. That is very unclean. He can't do that. But he did over and over and over. And what he showed is, I'm not becoming unclean by what I touch, but what I'm touching through (coughs) holiness then becomes clean. And that messed with so many people's minds. It messed with so many of their preconceived thoughts about what holiness really is. But he's like, no, I'm kind of bigger than that. So Jesus sets up the scene for what's going to happen after him, where, hey, this message is not just for this group of ethnic Jews, it's for the entire world. And so then in in, uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision on a roof of this huge blanket full of unclean animals, unclean food. And in this vision, God says, kill and eat. And Peter, thinking of holiness in the traditional way, says, "No, I can't. It's, these are unclean animals. There's like a pig and other shellfish and things like. I can't touch those. They're all the unclean." And God says, "What I have said is clean is clean. Kill and eat." And then He does that because then He follows that up with, "Hey, there's a non-Jew named Cornelius who is curious about Jesus." I want you, Peter, like the leader of the Jewish people, okay? Like the number one head honcho. I want you to go talk to this unclean Gentile, go into his home, eat his food with his family, and tell him about Jesus. And Peter struggles with that. That's why God gives him this vision. He's saying, hey, this thing is bigger than that. Holiness is not just about Outward cleanliness, it's not, it's not just for a certain group of people, but God wants this to be revealed. He did it through Jesus. And really the most important thing that Jesus did in revealing God's holiness through his life and through his death is he showed us that we truly cannot be holy. And that was the point of the law. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans. The point of the law is to show you your sinfulness. The point of these 613 plus laws from the Old Testament are to show you, you cannot be holy on your own. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough things. If you try, you're eventually going to fail. So Jesus came and his death gives us power over sin. It gives us true holiness. Now, it's not power over sin so that we'll never sin. So don't misunderstand that. But the power over sin is that so when we do sin, Jesus is the full and final sacrifice for sin. It is through him. I don't have to do any other sort of works. I don't have to bring any other sacrifice. There's nothing else that will take the place. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb who reveals the true holiness of God. It's holiness revealed. And that leads to the third thing that Jesus reveals, and that is God's justice. The scary part of God, the unfun part of God, the part that makes us kind of shiver in our boots, the the part of God that makes us a little bit afraid of him, God's justice, his punishment of wicked, and the people that do wicked. The justice of God was revealed through Jesus, and we see that in Isaiah 53. Prophecy about Jesus 600 years before He's born. Isaiah says this, chapter 53, verse 4, Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us So what started in the manger in Bethlehem, then led to 30-something years later, the whole point of this rescue mission was for the sacrifice to be revealed. And it revealed the justice of God. Because what Jesus did on the cross is he, as Isaiah predicted, he bore our sins. He bore our punishment because God must punish sin. And so he did. Now, it wasn't just the one day of the year when you bring an animal sacrifice. It wasn't when you bring the right kind of offering that God will overlook your sin or forgive it. No, through Jesus, he did it once and for all. The one-time sacrifice for all of the world. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He became sin, so God's justice could be satisfied. Because God has to punish sin, so he did through his son. And God's grace can then be extended to his People, So here's the good news. You don't have to carry your sin because Jesus did on his body on the cross. You don't have to fear punishment for your sin because Jesus has already been punished for your sin. So when we say, Jesus, I accept that exchange. Your life for mine, your sinlessness for my sin, your death for my life. That's what makes everything different in your life. Because we understand, I don't have to fear punishment for my sin because Jesus was already punished for my sin. You don't have to die in your sin because Jesus already did that too. He became sin. The one who knew no sin, the one who was perfectly holy, perfectly pure, became everything bad about you and me on the cross. Mm -hmm. He paid the penalty. God must must punish sin, yes, but he's already done it. He's already punished sin. He doesn't have to do it again and again and again. Now, we repent of our sin, yes, but that's a reaffirmation of what we've already affirmed through the death of Jesus, that I accept that sacrifice. And so Jesus has already done it. That's good news this Christmas. The fact that God seemed unknowable for so long and for so many that are part of him, he seems unknowable. But through Christmas, it started this process of knowing God more. The knowability of God is possible, and it's through Jesus. He reveals the things that are confusing about God, he he lives out so we can understand them. The things that seem too great to understand, Jesus explains it through his existence. And Christmas starts that for our lives and for all those around us. That's what Christmas is, Christmas. More knowledge about God.